Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's podcast, I am chatting to legendary chef and restaurateur Mark Hicks from Hicks and Food Rocks. Now, if you decided to open a restaurant that focused on oysters and meat on the bone, you probably wouldn't have done that in the year 2008. First, there was the financial crisis and credit crunch, and then there was still this lingering memory of the meat on the bone ban triggered by BSE a few years before. Mark Hicks's decision was perhaps all the more surprising because the job he was leaving executive head chef of Le Caprice Restaurant Group, which included famous venues like the Ivy and Jay Shiki, was the sort of plum roll other chefs would have given their eye teeth for. But it turned out very well in the end. His Hicks Oyster and Chop House marked the start of an award-winning family of Hicks restaurants in London and in Dorset. And it very much put Mark in the forefront of the modern British food movement, celebrating farmers, food producers and fishermen in his menus and in his annual Food Rocks Festival in the beautiful Lyme Regis. Discover how it all happened for a boy who was more interested in golf than food and then discovered he was rather good at cooking after all, I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Okay, Mark Hicks, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. And, and, and can you, I, 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 people will be you know, groaning when they hear this because I keep saying I come to all these incredible places recording this podcast. Yeah, it's a terrible view. It is, yeah. Earlier on, I was stood in a, in a field surrounded by 800 cows. Oh, by contrast... <laughs> Yeah, can you just explain where in the world are we? No, we're in my sort of back garden or front garden. I haven't really got a back garden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the garden. Yeah. I've got a garden downstairs, but that's sort of full of herbs and Is it? salads Do your and kitchen things, garden. Yeah. Okay. But where in the world? So we're um Yeah, we're in Charmouth. Sunny Charmouth. Yeah. yeah. Right on the, on the, still the Jurassic Coast here, is it? It is, yeah. So this is a great, I mean, I was, I was brought up around here. Yeah. Yeah, in West Bay, like eight miles away. Yeah. And didn't really, you know, when I, when I first moved to London to sort of, you know, work out what I really wanted to do in life. Yeah. Uh, I sort of slightly ignored Dorset and whatever. So later in life, you know, probably 10, 12 years ago, I thought, you know, it was a good place lured. to be brought up and, yeah, 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 really and appreciate a good place it. to maybe set up a business. Yeah, and got lured back. Yeah. I was chatting to um, Giles from Olives of Town. Do you know those guys? Yeah, Olives yeah, of Town? yeah. And he was saying that that kind of piece of elastic with people in Dorset who um, they often disappear. You know, I was the same. I lived in London for 10 years, but there's something about this part of the world yeah, that just lures you when back. I was, when I was younger, you know, London was the place that sort of lured you mm. into... Because, yeah, there wasn't much going on down here yeah. 35 years ago. Yeah, no, true. So, yeah, you had to sort of go to London. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right, actually. In fact, I think food and drink in, in the UK in general was, was was bad, even in London, if you go back far enough. So, yeah, yeah now yeah. that London's yeah. trailblazing, I yeah, guess yeah. it's rippled out. Yeah, so when I first moved to London, country. it was kind of hotels and there wasn't that many restaurants that, you know, of note. Really. No. Okay. So, uh, yeah, beautiful part of the world. I can literally see probably, I don't know, 15 miles to the east down the Dorset coastline. So beautiful spot. So uh, thanks for having us. Um, just to go back. So you're, yeah, you're, you were a local boy out on the fishing boats, were you? What was it? What was your first interest in food? I read something about you necking, uh, necking scallops <laughs> in the school playground. That's not everybody's upbringing, is it? So. No, yeah. So when, when I was like, you know, primary school, really? you know, my, my friends, uh, parents had fishing boats and stuff. Right. And one of our, you know, favourite, sort of playground snacks was uh, little queen's collops yeah that my friend mark uh his mum used to sort of just cook them very simply okay no preparation involved you know put them in a little polystyrene cup for us with all the frills on and the sort of the bits you don't eat 
with a bit of vinegar, really wow. sarsen's vinegar. Yeah, yeah, really, that's amazing. Was that many kids in the school, or were you pretty unique being the the ones eating scallops? No, we were the only ones. Were you? Yeah, yeah. It was special, and yeah. That, yeah, that that was the start. Of your day. <laughs> that was the start of your destiny. And there was, and it was catering college in Weymouth. So, what made you choose that then? When you were yeah, well, cooking before I, that, or? yeah, you sort of get to the fifth year at school. You're not quite sure what to do. You know, I didn't have a clue, really. You know what my future career was going to be, and. Uh, Fifth year at school, there was an option to do metal work or domestic science. We were doing metal work already. Okay. And uh, I hated metal work. I loved doing woodwork because right. it was kind of soft and you could sort of see your end goal, if you like. Yeah. But metal work, you'd end up sort of filing away a you know, piece of metal and getting a dodgy old key ring at the end of it, you know, six weeks later. Yeah. So... It wasn't for me metal work. Okay, really. yeah, that got rid of that. Well, these days I sort of love, you know, things made out of metal and things. But yeah. So about three of us decided to do the other option, domestic science. Okay. Thinking that we'd be in a classroom full of girls. I was going to say, I had deja vu. I was chatting, you know, William Curley, <laughs> yeah. uh, chocolatier. Yeah. I was chatting to him a few weeks ago. Exactly the same thing. He was mm. he was doing woodwork and he wasn't particularly enjoying it. And he looked over at the domestic science and there was something like, you know, 15 girls and two guys in the class. And that was his motivation. There seems to be this whole, uh, I don't know, yeah, cult history of chefs who got into yeah. it because there were and girls then, there. So, so the three of us turned up on day one and there was three of us and the no. teacher because all of the girls decided to do metal work for the other reason <clears throat> oh damn okay so <laughs> you, you passed like ships but in we the sort night. of you know we sort of did it for a year and didn't really take it seriously right I started working in the pub sort of washing up and stuff yeah. in the holidays and weekends to earn some extra money right and uh, it got to the end of the fifth year when you have to make the decision whatever that might be for the, for your, the rest of your life. Yeah. And, you know, didn't really know what to do. Down so, here normally farming. Yeah, so one of my, one of my, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So one of my dad's friends said, you've been working in the kitchen, you're doing domestic science, blah, blah, blah. Why don't you go to catering college? So I thought, okay, that's my only option. Right. <laughs> out okay. or in. Had, had you shown any skill before that in cooking? Were you any good not, at it? Or? Well, not, no, not really. It was just right. one of those things you did. Yeah. And uh, so I, yeah, so the minute I went to catering college, we had a great lecturer and still a very good friend, Laurie Mills, okay. who had worked in London right. and always talked about, you know, what he did in London and where he worked and stuff and was always talking about food and cooking. So that sort of got me into the sort of food side, you know, being in a sort of catering college environment. And we used to do this thing called electives on a Thursday, I think it was a Thursday afternoon, yeah, where you could choose a different subject. Right. And it could be art or, you know, sport or something. And we used to skip that. So we used to go to, go to the off-licence and then go back to his flat and have a bit of a party. Excellent, OK. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of lecture you want. Yeah, typical hospitality. So I thought, well, this, yeah. is, this is quite good fun. You know, I was like 17 years old. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so consequently, yeah. He's two, not still there. Two he's years not going to be in trouble. Yeah. No, 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 no. I saw him last week. OK, a couple perfect. Of beers. Yeah, good. And, uh, yeah, so after, after the two years catering college, I went to London. And By that point, you then, you decided, right. I actually like this. It's not just, I'm not just avoiding yeah, metal well work. It's, so. Yeah, sort of, yeah. I mean, that was really the only option. You yeah. know, I wasn't interested in anything else apart from a bit of fishing and yeah. golf and that sort of stuff. Okay. So, so yeah, that, well, that was the route to London, to London and, and that's got to be a big change. So straight up to London, straight into a job, yeah, easy so to get Yeah, so the first into. job, you know, so you write to the sort of 20 or 30 hotels and you sort of look at, the acceptances, which weren't great, you know, so the, the only sort of uh, slightly interesting thing was the staff canteen at the Hilton in Park Lane. Yeah. All my, all my friends luckily had got jobs at the Grosvenor House in the Dorchester, just up the road in Park Lane. So I sort of stuck it out for six months and uh, talked to my friends. We were sort of sharing a flat together and they got me an interview at the Grosvenor House. Okay, and this is back when it was uh, Anton, was it, who was running then? Anton. Yeah, Hedeman, so there's Anton Edelman, Vaughan Archer was pre, right. pre then. Okay. And uh, yeah, so that was um, my next stepping stone. Okay. Really. Yeah. And uh, good, uh, inspiring kind of mentor, I suppose. Yeah, well, Anton. Back, back then, sort of hotels were probably better training than restaurants because you could sort of count the good restaurants in London on one hand. Uh, so hotels were the places to go and sort of train, really. Right. Okay. And then only twenty-two when you became uh, head chef, first of all, at the Camden yeah. Week, so I did right? the yeah. So I did the 
Grosvenor Heights, then Dorchester, sort of two years at each. Right. And then one of the sous chefs that was working in the terrace, which the English boys couldn't really get into, uh, he was German, and he just randomly called me and said, look, you know, do you want to come to work at uh, Mr. Pontax, it was called. Yeah. And there was a, it was a kind of city restaurant with a wine bar and a, two wine bars in a restaurant. So I sort of jumped ship, went over there, and then after a few months he left. And I was quite enjoying that sort of, um, you know, young, sort of, in a, in a sort of restaurant that no one has heard of in the middle of the city. And uh, he left and I said to the boss, Philip Isles, I said, uh, you know, can I, can I take his job? You know, I was way too young, way too... I was going to say, 20, know, 22 way, years way old, that's, in, that's incredible. How many covers was it? What sort of, what sort of restaurant Well, was the it? restaurant was kind of 40 covers. Okay. The wine bars are quite busy. Yeah. And good food. That's, yeah, that's, a, so that's a huge... I, I sort of got the job and then, you know, a couple of years later, we, we sort of got our name on the map. I didn't really know much about Michelin stars or um, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we didn't get a Michelin star, but we got a... Um, what was it called back then? Some it was, thing, a, was it? a Red M, Red M. Michelin yeah, Guide, yeah. which is kind of halfway. Okay. Now, I, I wasn't really even cooking for that. I was just, you know, cooking, basically. Right. Just enjoying it? Yeah. Okay. The brigade respond to you okay at that age? Yeah, you... I had a sort of youngish brigade. Most of them I'd sort of worked with before at the Dorchester right. and the Grover House. Okay, amazing. That must have been good yeah. fun. What a, what a change from uh, West Bay to uh, exactly. head chef in a yeah, restaurant yeah. voice. I think yeah. that's one of the exciting things about this industry is the opportunity. I don't know, is it still the same? Can you progress that quickly? No, you can. Yeah, if you've got your heart in it, yeah. you know, it's quite easy to sort of progress in... Yeah, in this business. Yeah, because yeah, you have to be full on and sort of enjoy it. And because yeah. it's still got a reputation as being a bit of a stopgap, I think for a lot of people. No, it has. It? Yeah, and you know, I experienced that with my staff. You know, a lot of yeah. staff are not particularly interested in what they're doing, and they, you know, they move on after six months. Yeah, don't really take it that seriously. Yeah, but if you've got the commitment and the talent, it's a, it's an exciting industry. Yeah, yeah, industry yeah. So there's, move, there's a few that sort of shine and you know have the have the talent. You know. So you moved to uh, like a priest after that, was it? What was your role when you uh, when you went there? Yeah, so after sort of four years, four and a half years at the uh, Mr. Pontax, the candle whip room, uh, my fishmonger Tony Allen at the time said, uh, "Oh, there's a job at the Caprice going," and I did. I didn't really know about the Caprice or never really heard of it. So, I, and in those days, you couldn't really sort of Google and find out what was going True. on. You had to sort yeah. of flick through the Michelin Guide or guidebooks, and. Uh, I applied for the job and uh, got the job. What's so the job? quite young. It's head chef at the Caprice. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then just at that point, they bought the Ivy and uh, I was sort of cooking at the Caprice as head chef. And the head chef at the Ivy wasn't quite working out. So Chris Corbin and Jeremy King said, you know, do you fancy looking after to, you know, both of them? Which I did. How, how old were you at this point? By then, I was probably, uh, how old was I, 26 or 27 or something. Still, yeah, fast, young, fast, yeah, yeah fast, young and, fast. Right? Yeah, it's still quite an experience, really, but I, I think, yeah, if you've got your heart in it and you've you know, had a good sort of grounding in the hotels, then, uh, you know, you sort of know your stuff as much as you can sort of know, you know, whether it be carving a side of smoked salmon properly or, you know, butchering or fish fish yeah. prep and that sort of stuff I think the cooking side of it um, probably stays the same the people management side of it though presumably has changed yeah so that's something I ranks. had to learn and you know learn the hard way yeah that's more challenging I think mm. when you're younger I think isn't it because with experience yeah because people management is not something that anyone teaches you at catering college or anything you know so that's completely uh, on you know on the hoof mm. and what was your style because kind of the kitchens had a reputation as being very angry yeah so I, I was quite lucky because you know working for Anton Mosman and Anton Maidelman I was uh, they were sort of quite gentle they weren't a sort of hardcore um, restaurant chefs right. uh, so I, I had a sort of gentle upbringing yeah. really and, and did that carry because you, you'd like to think that you know being brought up by the seaside and uh, yeah, so that's probably the yeah, calming thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. You'd be calm, so you're yeah. not you're not one of the shouty. Uh, no, no, shouty I, chefs. I, I never I never experienced that lovely. No. Luckily, yeah. you've been quoted as saying that Chris Corbin and Jeremy King were the best restaurateurs in the world before. Why? What was your? Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to work with them for you know quite a few years. Yeah, and 18, yeah, something like that, was it? Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, they, they they were great because you know they 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 sort of taught you more about um, the sort of restaurant side than the cooking side. 
yeah. really. So I was kind of cooking and they were doing the restauranteuring and you sort of learnt about the customer. Yeah. So I, I learned a lot of things about, you know, what goes on the plate, you know, how you serve it, you know, simplicity and what the customers actually want, more importantly. Yeah, yeah do they? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of chefs that um, think it's all about the food, but, you know, the art of the restaurateurs, you know, because you, yeah. you've actually done yeah, it. Yeah, Is yeah. It, it, so it. It's not yeah, so just I, about the food. I sort of very quickly learned that, you know, it's all about the customer and what right. they want. Yeah. Not what the chef wants the customer to eat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sometimes you've got to say what the customer wants to buy, not mm. just what the chef wants to cook. So from that time, I sort of, you know, got it and right. understood what, you know, it was all about the customer. Yeah, and, and that's an incredible... And our customers were like, you know, good high-profile customers at that point. Yeah, so quite demanding, presumably. Well, somewhere, somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. But, but at least, you know, or, mm. or wanting the right things. Mm. So you learn fast. You, um, you you grew a lot in that time, didn't you? Um, can you just explain a little bit about that kind of, you know, that, that yeah, scaling so up period? Yeah, so the, you know, the restaurants moved on. Uh, Chris and Jeremy bought Jay Shiki. And just at that point, uh, they'd sort of sold to Luke Johnson. Uh, so I sort of stuck in there and, you know, kept going with it. And then Luke Johnson, after about two years, sold to uh, Richard Caring, and we then opened Scotts in Mayfair. Right. So Scotts was the sort of last per last restaurant I did with the Caprice Group. Okay. So over that time, how many restaurants did you open then? Because you, you well, we had yeah. So Caprice, Ivy, Jay Shiki, uh, we we sort of inherited Daphne's, if you like, in Chelsea, right. the Italian restaurant. Just some of the best known, best restaurants in the city. Well, over, yeah, exactly. Over, over, over yeah, a period yeah. of time. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a great did, experience and, yeah. you know, a great sort did of learning it, curve. Did it just become, presumably just became your normal sort of day? Did you ever pinch yourself and think, here I am, you know, scallop slurking, no, uh, school really. kid from West kind of, Bay? No, and not really. The best, it's, it's best kind of, you know, just get on with it and do it. Really. Yeah. Okay. So was there any particular, um, you know, from Chris and Jeremy's particular, I suppose, was there any kind of advice or anything you picked up that you then used when you created your own family restaurants? Was there a couple yeah, of an awful lot. That... Yeah, an awful lot, really. I mean, when I first opened uh, my first place, you know, the, the Oyster and Chop House in Smithfield. Yeah, so 2008, that's when you decide I'm going to yeah, go, go so alone. Yeah, so there was, a, you know, I carried all of that stuff, the philosophy and, um, yeah, the food that I'd sort of developed up to then. Uh, but what I didn't want to do is actually replicate anything I'd done before, you know, with the Caprice and Ivy Group. So I, I wanted to do something sort of completely different. So I decided to serve oysters and meat on the bone just at the time when, you know, there was the BSE scare and right. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and also an economic collapse around then as well. Yes. Like, wasn't it, it, the economy it, sort of Yeah, died. exactly. It was, it was credit crunch time. Yeah. And lots of people said, you know, why are you sort of you know, gambling and doing your own restaurant, you know, the credit crunch? And I put a dessert on that was uh, called Credit Crunch Ice Cream. Brilliant. And uh, we put it on the menu for in the dessert section for £1.50 a scoop. Really? So that was my sort of nod to you're, you're, the yeah. credit crunch. You sell, it, sell a lot. But it's actually, you know, I mean, business then actually, funny enough, was much better than it is now. Really? Really, because there were not a lot of restaurants around. Uh, yeah, certainly not as many as there is now. Okay. And... Uh, yeah, so it, it was, I would say, you know, although a lot of people say it wasn't easier then, I would say it much easier then than it is now. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, well, we'll definitely come back to that. So what was your motivation, though? Because presumably like then you were well-resourced, well-funded, you'd opened lots of restaurants. I'm guessing you could have got a, a cushy kind of exec chef role and kind of cruised around and... Uh, yeah, I could have done. Yeah. I, I, what, what, I, what, what made you want to kind of go off and do it yourself? And, and what, you know, was it very different? Well, I suppose I've, I've always been a bit of a sort of, you know, loner. You know, my, my, my parents separated when I was uh, six. I've always been very sort of independent in, you know, what I did as a kid. You know, I sort of played golf from a young age, you know, caddied for my dad and then he, he got me sort of playing golf. So I was sort of playing golf and amongst a lot of sort of seniors, so he learned a bit about etiquette and all that sort of stuff. And then became quite good at golf, got into a sort of good crowd of like-minded people uh, who went off to, you know, play golf professionally and... Uh, my dad wanted me to do the same thing. I, I sort of didn't really want to, you know, have my career as a sort of golf pro or whatever. Right. Um, I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. No. So that's why I ended up sort of cooking 
Yeah. Which was okay. you know, ended and, up as my passion. Yeah. yeah. And going out alone then and doing it off your mm. own back, did that feel very different? I presume you had the freedom to do uh, meat on the bone and, and, mm. and oysters, but um, the actual I, financial yeah, exactly. side of it, had you been completely exposed to that anyway? Or once well, it was your money? Luckily, my did it business feel partner who we worked together, he was in finance. So I had a sort of nice balance between, you know, the creative side and the, and the sort of finance side. Right. So when, when we first started, yeah. Yeah, because it, it does fundamentally uh, need to make cash, I suppose. So first day you opened, was it instantaneously successful or did it take Well, it was because I think people were watching watching me, had heard I'd left and, yeah. you know, were interested in what I, you know, what I was doing and what I was up to. And that's simplicity of the food. Again, you've been said, you know, there should only be is it three three primary ingredients, I think, on the yep. plate. Was that yep. was that different? Had you always done that or were you able to do no, that a I lot more of, under your own? The more I progressed and sort of learnt more about food and started writing about food, you know, I, I sort of learnt about, you know, main ingredients and where food came from and sort of developed this philosophy of, you know, no more than three ingredients on the plate. You know, sometimes one ingredient. Okay. Uh, clearly it worked because it wasn't long. Was, was the next one down here? Was this the next restaurant? Or? Yep. So the Oyston Chop House in uh, Smithfield was the first. Yeah. And then this site came up down in Dorset. Okay. And it was, uh, I got a phone call from this guy called Carl one day who used to run the trampolines and rowing boats in the river down in West Bay. Yeah. So Mark, I've got, a, I've got a restaurant you might be interested in down in Lyme Regis. It was already a restaurant or...? It was, was and then the, the, the land was um, subsiding, so they sort of rebuilt the whole thing, and he sort of rebuilt this restaurant, uh, not intending to sort of do it himself, but right. you know, to, to sort of sell it on. Did he have you in mind? <laughs> well, yeah, he phoned me, and I went down and you know saw it for the first time and said, "Yep, okay, we'll take it." Maybe. So that was a like that. that was a perfect sort of second sight, really, yeah. with a good story. Had you been planning on coming back to the no, you know, to, to the coast, no. or no. yeah, because by then you'd been. Predominantly in London for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I, I was kind of fixed in London, yeah. really. Happy. So that was my sort of introduction back to, you know, Dorset. Okay. Strategy at this point, because then Soho was next, I think, was it? And uh, have, you, have you, you know, was this was this kind of planned? Did you always know you would open a number? No, or did not really. Opportunity it, was, just it was kind of, you know, things came up and, you know, Soho was uh, something that I was walking past one day with my business partner, Ratnish. Yeah. And there was a for sale sign, so we contacted the agent went and had a look and it sort of opened and failed within about 12 months yeah so we contacted the agent we bartered you know on the lease and we ended up getting a really good sort of premium which you know affected a lot of the premiums in sort of Soho area at the yeah. time and we opened it it was really successful and uh still just about open today <laughs> okay because yeah we'll touching on that and, and you mentioned just now the kind of the change in the trade because you've closed a few restaurants as well as opened a few restaurants yeah I yeah and does, I, that, does that mean they've all not worked or yeah because you, yeah you open restaurants and you you're on a roll and sometimes they work sometimes they don't you know i had a restaurant in a hotel in Belgravia um that a friend of mine had introduced me to the owner and we opened it and Belgravia is a funny place and I lost an awful lot of money in about 11 months. Wow. So we kind of, sort of got out without signing the lease. And, yeah. uh, too, uh, too high cost, too few customers, all of the well, above? The, yeah, the cost, yeah, the usual stuff. The costs were high. The revenue wasn't great. It's very inconsistent. Right. And um, we lost it's, a shitload of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Much as I, I, I am sorry. I see that look in your eye. But I think it, it, it's kind of reassuring. But a, yeah, but those things are a learning curve. Yeah, well, it, and, yeah, and it's so reassuring to us mere mortals. All the, money, who, all, all the money in the previous years you might have made, yeah, you sort of lose in great, one go in about 11 months. Leveler. Yeah. But I think for, you know, average Joe Blogs out there who, who sets up a restaurant, you know, if, if Mark Hicks can have a restaurant that doesn't do so well occasionally, then we feel less bad when we come up with an idea yeah, exactly, that doesn't work. Yeah. So yeah. I've had to close uh, a couple of places over the years. And it's heartbreaking because in, in your head, you can kind of, you know, you see it and you yeah. have the vision and you yeah. build it and you imagine it's going to be full of people. And then, you know, we, we ran one for six years trying to make it work. And in the end, you have to go, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to let this baby go now. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. it's... Um, and we opened another one in the city in Devonshire Square, which didn't quite work out. <clears throat> and to sort of, you know, I sort of changed the concept a couple of times within the sort of two and a half years over there uh, and ended up having to sort of give the landlord half a million quid Wow. To give it back to him, 
Oh, yeah. Basically, wow. so yeah. fit it out. We'd lost quite a lot of money in this race of sort of two years. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> so, and off the back of that, does it make you? You know, is there a perfect number of uh, of, of Mark Hicks restaurants? Are you at a comfortable level? No, really, it's or? not. It's not about the amount of restaurants. I think it's about where they are. You right. know, really. And London's getting tougher and tougher. Mm. So it's uh, yeah, London's tough. You yeah. know, Soho they've doubled our rent, for example. Oh, really, doubled. Yeah. And the in, business in, rates have gone, you know, in, in one rent crazy. Just over yeah, in one one review. Jeez. Okay, so you know, it's been fascinating, I suppose, watching it from outside of London. But you, you know, what's the reason? Is it rates is clearly one of them, or rents? But you've also seemed to have, you know, a huge amount more supply now. And is that supply? Yeah, do we think, do. Do you think yeah. the consumer kind of choice is changing because we now seem to have these kind of uh, rollout chain concepts in a way that we never had years ago? It's a combination of stuff, you know. So in Soho, for example, there's in Berwick Street, there's probably forty street traders who can just open. Um, they probably don't have to abide by the same health and safety EHO stuff as we do. They yeah. can just open open shop, cook you know decent food, seven or eight quid a portion, and that certainly you know affects I'm, I'm sure a lot of restaurants in Soho. Yeah, and that's. Uh a change in consumer demand because at some at one point I suppose you know it started off with with fine dining and then it went to you know at least a la carte a little bit more kind of casual mm. and now yeah. we've ended up at, at street food I wonder how much of it has come from the consumer or how much of it comes from London VCs that decide they're going to roll out a, a chain of restaurants and the consumer ends up almost sort of subconsciously compromising I suppose and eating yeah, food yeah. is nowhere near as good because it's all been made in a centralised kitchen do you have yeah, any yeah, thoughts yeah. around well, there's that, lots of that. Of the there's lots of that as well yeah I mean sort of chain restaurants open and Yes, they produce food in centralised kitchens. But yeah, does that, does that uh... and you know a lot of the consumers aren't that sort of you know discerning really. So a lot of them don't know the difference between good, mediocre, or, you know, inconsistent bad food. Yeah. So. And that, I find that as a restaurateur frustrating that we can care about, you know, have, having food cooked by a brigade of human beings, you know, chefs who actually know their craft, who actually know the provenance of where that food comes from. And we'll come on to this um, in a little bit with, with food rocks and the provenance of food. But why is it that on one level um, we seem to have got better in the UK around food? You know, go back a long time and we, we didn't have a great reputation. Now we've got a reputation as being one of the best places in the world. Yep. Yet at the same time, you don't go across to Europe and notice uh, the same chain restaurant in every street corner. How have we got that juxtaposition well i think i think london like sort of new york and la and probably sydney and uh melbourne uh sort of welcome lots of different types of cuisine in you know paris certainly doesn't do that you know a lot of the cities in italy don't do that you know if, if you go to paris you know you'll be hard pushed to get a decent indian meal or italian meal or you know but L L london has probably cuisines from 100, yeah, 150 different countries. Yeah. And that's great, I think, isn't it? Because that makes yeah, yeah. A, a potential melting yeah, I mean, point so of, much of ideas. In London, and, and, and innovation, I think, is great. Mm. You know, again, it's come up a lot in this podcast that one of the reasons we're, we're eventually good, William Curley was chatting it with chocolate, if that you're in uh, in France or in Belgium, you're probably expected to follow the traditions of your trade and the heritage of your trade. And actually, if you become too innovative and too revolutionary, you'll kind of be almost kicked out of the profession. Whereas in England, because we have this mishmash of different cultures... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you can get away with all sorts of things. Yeah, you can get away with having a world. But, mm. but, but, but if the downside is is yeah the consumer ends up not knowing what's good and what's bad and the fact that their chicken's been flown in from thailand and injected full of salty yep. water to make it heavier and your prawns are all grown in a yep. big vat in vietnam and, and full of antibiotics yeah, exactly. and stuff. so uh that that ends up irritating me i don't think you don't look irritated mark but that's because you're <laughs> sat overlooking the ocean with a glass of wine so i'm going to be irritated and, uh, and you can be chilled out um the other thing you're really well known for is is art so you opened the um, tram shed which is a pretty unusual building what motivated you to convert that yeah so the tram shed was an interesting building someone that i sort of knew fairly well you know called me one day he, he'd actually bought the building it was literally a, a generator building or something yeah it? yeah so it was a it was a generator building for the trams you know that you know operated Sounds in london ideal. back in the <laughs> sort of you know early 1900s yeah. and a uh, fantastic building I, I used to live literally around the corner two minutes away yeah. and i walked past that building every day and when he offered it to me i thought okay this is a great opportunity to do a, a big restaurant and didn't really know what i was going to do then and then I just suddenly thought, you know, steakhouses are sort of, you know, coming together in London and but no one's really done chicken. Yeah. 
So the focus was sort of, you know, whole roast chickens and different cuts of steak. Well received? Yeah. How long, I mean, it, how long ago it, was that? I was panicking, you know, all, all the way up to opening. Yeah. Um, especially when I decided to put a big Damien Hurst yeah, yeah, cow from Aldehyde yeah. in the restaurant. It looks amazing. And it sort of was a big success from the beginning. So, you know, even vegetarians used to book in and sit under the cow. And really? Eat our vegetarian menu, yeah. So. Yeah. That's, uh, that's good going, because mm. that's, that's the sort of place they'd end up boycotting. Did you know Damien anyway? We yeah, already, yeah, we, we know each other for years. Yeah, you were already excited by it, because not just him, but you've, you've now got uh, quite a lot of art, I think, in there, you? and it's known as an art. Yeah, it's so not in the Shamshed necessarily, but in the other restaurants, I always make the art a part of the, uh, the decal. Do you think that's important to the, the, yeah. the kind of how a, how a space feels? No, I think I so, yeah, because there's always a story behind it. So I've always had that thing, you know, working for Corbin and King of uh, a whole part of the makeup of the decal is about, you know, what people look at in the restaurant, which is the artwork. Okay, yeah. I think that's the bit that people miss some, particularly in hotels. Hotels used to have a terrible, uh, I don't know, just ability to recognise that their lighting was bright and then, well, they didn't have any music at all mm, and they had mm. these very uh, staid restaurants and I guess that's that's one thing that certainly the casual sector's done well is it had make, makes places feel more relaxed and it's changed yeah, yeah, the bars yeah. and it's changed the lighting, which is um, which is so important. So um, we, we touched a little, I mean, through all of this, was, was the provenance of food something that was always important to you or was that something that grew to, over well, time? Well, it's only when I started writing about food, I think, probably... Um, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago. So the minute, the minute I started writing about food, I, I was more curious about where food came from. Okay. What and, was the trigger to make you want to write about it? Uh, I just sort of fancied writing, really. Yeah. And uh, someone I knew who was the food editor for the independent, Caroline Stacey, called me one day and said, uh, you know, Simon Hopkinson is leaving after eight or nine years would you like to take over his column? You know, so I, I did. And I'd never written a regular sort of newspaper column before. And sort worry, of cracked not, many, on. not many people have. No. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sort of cracked on and did it. And, you know, 13 years later, I was still doing it. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the Independent folded up and that was it. But yeah. that, that was a great uh, opportunity, really, to sort of write about food, investigate food yeah. and get a sort of good handle on, you know, where food comes from and what people want. That's interesting, isn't it? And interesting the doors opens. That sounds very similar to this story with uh, we're doing the podcast where I wanted to go around and meet, you know, say not not just the people who actually produce the food or the restaurateurs, but what I've learned about yeah, where our milk comes from and where yeah. our animal products come from and rare breed charcuterie with um Capriolas down the road and yeah, uh, yeah the English wine scene. So yeah. it's uh, yeah, yeah, interesting what the trigger is, although I was always interested. Did you find in the kitchen in the early days it was harder to get British and sort of local produce? Yeah, when I first started in London, I mean, you didn't really know where the food came from. Right. So, you know, when I was sort of 20 years old, you know, you cooked whatever, carrots, asparagus, you know, salad stuff, but didn't really know quite where it came from. Uh, so it was only much later in life that I, you know, sort of became interested in actually where food came from and then started having a very sound uh, understanding that, you know, our menus should be based around British food and what's the point of importing, you know, stuff from abroad when it's all on our doorstep. So that, that kind of got me going. Yeah. And why do you think that's important? Because I've, I've had conversations with chefs in the past and the only thing they care about is how food tastes. And that's yeah. it. Yeah. Not necessarily is the, is the provenance of the food in the States, although they often do go together, not always. So why do you think, uh, yeah, where food's from is important? Well, you know, I think when you start writing about food and you start understanding food and its provenance, then uh, you, you start thinking, yourself, okay, well, this guy up north or whatever, you know, is producing great sprouting broccoli and shallots and whatever. And, you know, in the past, we've always imported it. But, you know, we need to support these guys. You know, then I come across chicken farmers and, you know, people that are you know, producing really good stuff and suddenly start realising actually, you know, we, you know, all, all of us, whether we're professional chefs or the general public need to start, you know, supporting our British farmers. Mm. And do you think people care? Some do, some don't. Yeah. You know, and I discovered that along the way as well. You know, I always remember doing uh, 
many years ago doing a, a cookery demo in, I think it was Christchurch Food Festival. Yep. And there was a little sort of farmer's market there. There was a, there was a local asparagus grower. And right behind him was a little deli a sort of farm shop sort of thing. And he was selling his local, locally grown asparagus. And I went in the farm shop and they were selling Spanish asparagus. And I asked them why, why they were selling Spanish when this guy outside uh, grows it like four miles away. And they said, well, you know, the customer's not prepared to pay an extra pound a bunch for something that's going locally. They, they want to, you know, they're sort of price driven, which is sad. It is, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's actually, you know, there are three or four reasons, again, why I do this, but that's one of the key ones is that, you know, the, the passion and the love that some people have got for whatever their niche is, you know, mm. and, and, and mm. there's so many providers. You know, what I think it's a, it's a privilege as a restaurateur that all you've really got to do is find incredible suppliers, yeah. and find incredible producers. And it's very easy on, you know, on, on menus to, you know, and it makes the menu look a bit more sexy when you've kind of, you know, name-checked the producer or the grower on the menu. And uh, you know, suddenly you're sort of educating the you know the punters. Yeah, and and there's no way, yeah, in the same way that you know I employ better chefs than I am and and better cocktail barman than I am, and there's no way that you can possibly just love every single ingredient the same way that a dedicated professional. No, exactly. Can. And, and and now you know, compared to you know, fifteen twenty years ago, you know, we can now have um, fantastic English spirits. Mm. You know, so most, you know, at least fifty percent of our spirits in our cocktails and our back bar stuff are British. Yeah, well, you're even wearing a Black Cow uh, t-shirt. So, exactly. Uh, yeah, Jason, uh, <laughs> who's also right. yeah, I've also interviewed. So, uh, which I think is fascinating, the fact that you can make vodka uh, from milk. But yeah, um, and, and and that again is you know a very interesting thing that you know, and it's it's unique in the UK at the moment. You know, I'm sure more people will start doing it but you know he's from a family of cheesemakers and dairy farmers yeah uh, so you know having having or producing a vodka that's made from the byproduct of that that you know for centuries yeah. was actually you know thrown down the drain yeah, incredible. It's a great yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, the open air dairy guys that I was telling you about earlier, all of their milk goes to barbers to make the cheese. So yeah, that's yeah. part of their yeah. supply chain. And the fact that the cows are out in the field all year means that they're always eating beautiful kind of, you know, clovers and herbs and mm. grasses and mm. it affects the flavours of the cheese. So it's all linked. But all too often... You know, we were chatting, um, not you and I, but, but the, the farmer earlier about, you know, American cheese and the fact that they have such an intensively reared kind of uh, ecosystem for the for the cows and, and therefore the cheese is just, you know, kind of rubbish. And, and I hope that by having these conversations, people will care more. And I hope that the restaurants that, that celebrate that and, uh, you know, supply that local produce benefit more than, again, yeah, yeah. these, these I mean, yeah, we're, I we're lucky in the UK. I mean, we have, you know, great dairy. Mm. great dairy farmers mm-hmm. and consequently you know we have great cheeses yeah and some of the best animal kind of welfare standards and stuff I mean, in the world you, you can do a cheese board and give it to a frenchman and they wouldn't know that it's from the uk yeah yeah and and same with charcuterie it's used to be you know 10 20 years ago all charcuterie seemed to come from the continent all cheeses seemed to come from the continent but um it goes back to my other question i suppose but you you know you've a noticed that you can get it all in the uk and and then was that an instantaneous change then where you decided that you'd roll that out across yeah your i mean the more research you do you know the more people that send you things you know to sort of try then you suddenly quickly understand that actually you know we have great things on our doorsteps yeah and and you've taken that to uh you know not an extreme necessarily but certainly a pretty decent level with uh, food rock so can you just explain what that is and how that came about so yeah for years and years i've been i've been doing little tiny food festivals around the country and you know which is sort of great and you know they sort of showcase local producers so I, i decided you know when i got the restaurant down here that we should do our own little festival you know we've got a great setting overlooking the sea certainly have it's not all done in your garden and we have great (laughs) produce and you know you can you know include Devon and Dorset and Somerset in that and uh, yeah suddenly it sort of took off so this is this is our seventh year seventh year wow okay you have some help as you've been organising that because that yeah, must be a so, huge Yeah, uh, so some of, my, some of my old colleagues like Joe, you know, really make it happen and, you know, we have lots of support and, you know, the, the more popular it gets, you know, the more people that want to come on board and come and, you know, show their wares. Yeah, and do you have a criteria as to who's who's in and who's out as to yeah, we vet, producers? Yeah, or? well, we do vet them. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't get generic cheese producers that put cranberries and walnuts in their cheese and, you know, so they, they need to be, you know, full-on proper 
you know, producers. Right. You go out and source them or people will come to you now? Presumably, well, yeah, so. so most of them are now anyway. Yeah. And then we get some new ones that pop up and they say, you know, can we come and show and, you know. Yeah, so that's a two-day event? Yep. Okay, and then there's there's demos. You're, are you yeah, all, so we do demos and it's normally, you know, chefs I know, so I get you know, some people sort of comparing. So Steve Lamb, who works with the River Cottage, he's a great guy. Yeah. And he's done it the last couple of years. And, you know, chefs, most of them are sort of West Country based, but we get a few from London down. Okay. And it's just a good fun event for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Learn them down the other way. Mm. And are you, uh, you're involved? Are you, are you cooking? Yeah. Are you, so uh, I'm, are you on the stage? Yeah, or? yeah. I'm, I'm on the stage with, yeah, nearly everyone, every one of them. Yeah. Do you know what you're making this year, or does it depend? Is it, is no, it, is it, is it I never, plan, never, no, plan? I never plan. what comes in on the day boats? Yeah, so what I've done recently, the last two years, is uh, focused on bycatch. Okay, excellent. Which is, uh, you know, it's a big thing. So Lime Bay was made into a, it was the first um, marine reserve by the Blue Marine Foundation. So by that, you know, we support the local fishermen. They can fish in season, out of season for different species. And the last couple of years, I thought, you know, we should just do bycatch and make all the chefs that are doing demos use the bycatch. So a bycatch could be, you know, it's a non-targeted species. So a, a bycatch could be one single turbot or brill that someone that's fishing for sea bass caught in the nets. So that's technically a bycatch. It yep. uh, could be gurnard, it could be mackerel, whiting, you know, gurnard, whatever. So it's, then, it, then it sort of puts the chefs on the spot a bit and makes them think about what they're going to cook. Okay. And uh, that's challenging in restaurants because I think, I, uh, you know, we could go down the rabbit hole of uh, fishing policy, but it's complicated, I think, isn't it? You know, quotas on what you're allowed to mm. catch. You catch, you've got to go out there and you've got a certain no, quota to catch bass. You catch the wrong fish, you've yeah, got to throw exactly. it back in the and sea. I, and I sort of, you know, a lot of the local fishermen are good friends of mine. And I sort of totally understand and get, where they're coming from but they've all sort of abided by the rules and changed their techniques some of them you know so some of them have changed from you know netting to potting for cuttlefish for example yeah. and different times of the year they'll, they'll fish for different things which is actually what it should be all about especially someone like this because there are you know some fantastic opportunities not to just fish for one species and when the when the blue marine foundation banned sort of trawling within eight miles that sort of changed the whole fishing thing here so anglers were suddenly starting to catch uh cod on the reefs you know when cod had sort of completely different you know disappeared so it it kind of changed the whole thing okay but that was part of national policy to, to not be able to fish within eight no, miles no it, it was really the sort of blue marine foundation making it into a reserve right and banning trawling within sort of eight miles wow really okay so yeah, because there uh, used to be a lot of uh, scallops from Lime Bay as well, I think, mm. wasn't there? And then they were banned because, you know, scallops, a lot of scallops are caught by dredging the ocean. Well, the, dredge, the, the, the bed, dredging so. was banned. Right. Uh, but now there's some good scallop divers. Right. That all, are, um, all and, the, and the beds have uh, revived. Really? The ones that, you know, got trashed in the old days by the the, the trawlers and the dredgers. Right. Okay. Uh, so they're now getting, you know, good quantities of scallops. Yeah. I saw them come back on the uh, you know availability, I suppose, through the local suppliers, and was wondering how they'd got around it because they disappeared for for a couple of years. But it's still, a, was... but it's still a season, an in season and out of season. So, yeah. for example, you know there, there'll be maybe about three or four months here where, which is a closed season, where they can't dive for scallops. Right. But two miles down the road in Devon, on the Devon coast, they can then fish there for. So you sort of let the land rest. Yeah, perfect. And then, in yeah. in that period when you couldn't buy local and hand dive was too expensive, certainly uh, in our restaurants, we ended up getting uh, from the US. And although I'm always a f big fan of using local, they they seem to have that farming approach in the US where they would do exactly that. They would you know treat each each part of the seabed. They wouldn't go back to it for ten years. So they'd call an off an area yeah, and go, yeah, right, we'll yeah. fish here this yeah, year. Which is, which is a good and thing. We'll and I, I think the local fishermen are understanding that more and more. And because at the end of the day, it's not just their livelihood, but it's their next yeah, generation. Absolutely. As well. Again, so you know a lot of fishermen. What's the consensus? Is there a, is there a less fish? You, I suppose you've touched on that really. But when, when you were a kid, there were no restrictions. People could fish anywhere. Was there more fish then, and or, or, or now has yeah, that changed? Probably, there were probably more fish then, but uh, now you know it is quite hit and miss. You know, some of my friends who fish for bass, for example, you know, have a great day on one of the wrecks 
will return to the same wreck the next day with zero. Right. But the interesting thing that's happened here is uh, a few years ago, someone in Devon, one of the fishermen who had a certain size boat that was allowed to net within a certain region, a certain um, mileage from the shore, started catching um, anchovies. Okay. And the last three or four years here, there's been a lot of sightings of bluefin tuna. Oh, really? Off the De- Dorset and Devon coast. Right. I sort of witnessed one once. I was, I was taking my boat from Lyme to West Bay and I saw this big fish quite close in, sort of jumping straight out of the water. You know, we see a lot of dolphins here. You do, don't you? Yeah, well, uh, but it wasn't cool. a dolphin because they don't sort of dive straight out of the water. Right. And um, that was a tuna. Wow. And then there's been lots of sightings. You know, if you, if you go on YouTube now, you can see lots of, you know, big shoals of tuna and big tuna, like, you know, 600 pounders really? that used to exist, uh, you know, in the sort of 1920s, 1930s on the East Coast when the herring fishery was uh, really abundant and the, the tuna used to feed on the herrings and right. then the herrings disappeared and uh, the tuna disappeared. Okay. So that's exciting. So, so why are they uh, why are they back? Well, yeah, people start catching herrings again. So you, you never know what the the tuna are, you know, chasing. Yeah, but it's normally stuff like herring or mackerel or stuff like that. And uh, water temperatures have changed. And, and then, do you get a gist with the local consensus that the, the fishing industry was pretty famous at the point of uh, the vote through for? Uh, Brexit about the issues of the kind of European Commission and, and and quotas and the restrictions. Is there a general kind of optimism now in the, in the local fishing, or are they still well, concerned? Or I don't know. I think the local fishermen kind of get on with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think whether we do or don't, you know, let trawlers and fishermen in from you know across the water. You know, it will happen when it happens, but uh, they just have to get on with what they do and. In their livelihood. Yeah. And you've just written a book uh, all about fishing as well, Hooks. Uh, yeah, so it's, a, it's, a, it's not really a recipe book. It's more about my sort of fishing stories over the last sort of 20 odd years. Uh, fishing experiences, you know, catching, not catching. Most of the time, not catching. Yeah. You know, you get a very famous rivers where, you know, which are prolific, prolific for sort of salmon and stuff. And you end up sort of turning up at the wrong time when the water's too low or whatever and you don't catch anything. Uh, so, yeah, so it's just fishing stories. But some of them are, you know, good stories about, you know, fishing abroad in the Palmas for bonefish and that sort of stuff and just different experiences over the years because wherever I travel, I always take my fishing rod. Yeah, I think I read that never one, of, one of your favourite things about <laughs> fishing is that you can buy a lot of kit. Is that... You've got a lot of toys. Most, um, <laughs> most people that are keen on fishing have way too much kit yeah and uh it's one of those addictive things you know you, you get to a tackle shop and you, you get sort of lured in and end up buying things you don't really need but it ends up in your tackle box yeah and you've got you've got the uh i was going to say that well the opportunity i suppose if you like kit that you need a set of kit for london and a set of kit yes, for down here exactly. as well yeah, so yeah. Uh, yeah. you still <laughs> get out happens, yeah. yeah you still get out regularly <laughs> yeah yeah fishing. as much as i can yeah yeah okay cool um Food Rocks as well works with a couple of charities. It's RNLI and uh, what was the other one? Fisherman's Mission. Yeah. Okay. Great. Why? Uh, yeah. Why? Well, I, I think being on the coast, you know, it, it's the sort of seaworthy charities. You know, the, the the RNLI is an obvious one because that you know is you know that's here and you know people get rescued all the time. Not just people that are fishing, but people that are out on the boats that you know don't check the weather conditions or tides and stuff. People walking along the beach that don't know if the tide's coming in or out and often get rescued, you know, when the tide comes in and they get rescued from the cliffs. Uh, but also in London, it's quite important. You know, the River Thames, you know, there's quite a big uh, lifeboat thing going on there and people don't really connect the River Thames with, you know, the RNLI. Mm. I did a white bait dinner uh, for the local uh, Thames lifeboat crew about three years ago. And uh, I sort of chatted to them. I said, you know, what, how often do you get called out? And, you know, and during that dinner, they got called out twice that night. On the Thames? Yeah. Really? And it's normally people that, you know, throw themselves off the bridges that don't know what they're doing. And there was one particular occasion where the lifeboat crew a few weeks previous uh, were on their boat ready to go out. And someone landed on the deck of the boat that had jumped off the bridge. 
they didn't really look where they were going. So he literally travelled from Germany, apparently, and chucked himself off the bridge, landed straight in the lifeboat. They were waiting for him, or that was just coincidence? <laughs> it was just coincidence. Wow, is that worse? I don't know. Landing in the water or landing on the boat? <laughs> at least he was in good, good, <laughs> he safe good, good, good hands once he, they were... He, he broke a few limbs. But... Yeah, putting, them, putting them back together. <laughs> okay. Do you know uh, Conquer Gin? Do you use Conquer? Because yeah, they've yeah, just done yeah. a partnership with the RNLI. Yeah, yeah, chucking, yeah. Chucking in the bottles as well. So. Yeah, so we sort of, you know, we support, you know, a lot of their local... Uh, distillers and stuff and we're you know, we're lucky around here we have Somerset Cider Brandy Julian Templey Black Cow Conker uh, uh, Sorkum Gin any any good wine down here this way yet? great ones yeah. yeah I mean within probably about five or six miles you know we've got three or four very very good sparkling wines all, all sparkling yeah. Still, yeah and I'm doing a collaboration with Rob Corbett from Castlewood right uh, Robin Hudson, my fishing buddy. Yeah, we're doing a, a, a still wine with Robin. Yeah. Are you okay from the pig? Yeah, okay, excellent. That would be fun. So, what dates? Food rocks? Do you remember? Top so of your it's head? the first week in September. First week in first September. weekend. Yeah, okay. And uh, mainly locals. We get a lot of tourists coming down and booking. Yeah, so well, what the great, th- well, the great thing is it attracts a lot of locals and it attracts a bit of tourism as well. Right. So you know you get a real mixture of people from all over the place. Free event. Yep. Just rock up and there's stalls you can yeah, buy so, food, watch the Yeah, demos. exactly, yeah. So they can watch demos free of charge and, you know, we encourage them to sort of buy local produce and local wines, sparkling wines. Yeah. It's got a great reputation. I will uh, make sure that I'm here this year. I've not been before, which is uh, which is crazy. You but, should. Uh, yeah, you're not, you're not too far away, <laughs> but I'll come. And in doing the research for it and seeing, yeah, seeing all the amazing brands that come, it's great. Any particular, I don't want to say favourites because, uh, you know, I'm sure you love them all, but any particular stories or any particular brands that you... Uh, no, not really. I mean, we, you know, I, th- I think the, the great thing is that, you know, all, all the local sparkling wine producers rock up yeah. and are there. You know, there's no competition because they're all doing their own thing. You know, a bit like if you're in France, in the sort of Champagne region, you know, there's no sort of competition. They all do what they can do. Yeah, I was chatting to um, Simon from Wines GB uh, a little while ago, and he was saying the good thing at the moment, and it, and it might change if uh, if we manage to produce enough. But on a on a global level, or certainly on a European level, we produce actually so little sparkling wine. It's kind of a win for any yeah, sparkling yeah, wine. Yeah, it's a win yeah. for everybody yeah, because yeah. the more we can get British people to know about sparkling wine, and certainly any export kind of opportunities, and a lot. Yeah, of and the sort of hurdle at the moment is really uh, you know people still have this perception that you know because it's English sparkling wine, they sort of compare it with things like prosecco. Hmm. Different thing, yeah. They should be comparing it with champagne, absolutely, because we have the same conditions, the same challenges with you know weather and harvest and all that sort of stuff, and the production method is identical, you know. So there's no reason why English sparkling wine should be any cheaper than you know some of the big champagne houses. Yeah, will be small champagne houses. And 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 it's it's. uh... You know, that seems to be the part of the why. I suppose it's a more forgiving process making sparkling wine than trying to make the reds and the whites. Um, do you think we'll ever get the, the kind of red wines going in the UK? Well, well? I, I've had some good red wines, uh, but then sort of bought them in and they haven't been that great. So I think, yeah, that's something for the future, red wines. Yeah. Um, and switching the grapes around and growing different grapes. Yeah. Maybe learning. Yeah, the, uh, so the, so the, the white wines and the sparkling are the thing, really. Yeah. It's the same soil, apparently. It comes under from the Champagne region, comes is, under the channel and exactly. comes out certainly further east. Is that the same down all the way, here? Yeah, no, exactly, the yeah. Here? So there's a line from sort of Sussex all the way down here, um, which is very, very similar to the Champagne yeah. growing regions. Yeah. Just uh, not this year. They're going to be uh, disappointed <laughs> so far this year. But last year would have been a Well, exactly, yeah. So. But if we get a hot spell, I mean, you've got olives growing right next to you. I have. Yeah. You've got a lot of olive trees. So, uh, yeah, you'll have uh, Giles from Olive to Cows, another one that we interviewed. He'll be coming round and, uh, and picking them. Yeah. yeah, not so much fruit. Hopefully they'll survive through the rest of the summer. Yeah. And they might turn themselves into nice little juicy olives. Who knows? Talking a little bit, we talked about it with, with fish and sustainability. What's your thoughts on the, uh, I suppose, have you noticed it in your own restaurants, but the growth of the, uh, I guess, you know, eating less meat, shall we say, whether you go full vegan or you go more plant-based, but there seems to be this, certainly you know, even with the um, World uh, Health, I think it was, you know, kind of global diet, looking at it a, a couple of months ago, encouraging people to cut down on meat consumption. Have you noticed it in your restaurants and have you got any thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, for years and years now, we, we, we've offered a sort of vegan and vegetarian menu. And 
I get it. I, I don't, I'm not anti-vegan or vegetarianism. I mean, in fact, I'm I'm in the process of writing a vegan book at the moment. Are you really? I'm the most unlikely person. I was going to say I'm surprised by that. To, to be fair, write a vegan book, but I, you know, I, what's, what's I've got all the knowledge that? of vegetables and their provenance and where they come from. So there's no reason why, uh, as a meat eater and a big, you know, flyer of the you know provenance of meat. And you know, local fish. I shouldn't write a vegan book, really. Because right. actually, I, I just find you know, cooking vegan food is just as interesting as cooking meat and fish. Yeah, that's uh, unusual, I would say, with chefs. So I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's important. And uh, but I would say so much of the kind of classic history of the you know the culinaire and the french kind of sauces and the stocks and all that kind of stuff comes from a, yeah. from a heavy meat background um is that has that changed because of your kind of like you say again the writing and the learning about no, not really. I, 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 I think you know you have to be aware of what you know what people want these days you know and actually you can spin it around a bit and actually you know cook decent vegan food interesting vegan food and uh you know, cut out the butter, cut out the cream, cut out the proteins, and uh, yeah, we have great vegetables on our doorsteps. Yeah, so it's good. I think it's exciting because I think if chefs like you can start to do that, then you know you are. Uh, I don't know whether it's a it's a good thing. It's just a thing. But I guess you're you know inspirational to a lot of chefs, and a lot of chefs will follow your work. And I think they have a natural a lot of chef still for me uh, I suppose you know in the same way as the public I guess you know it, it can become quite divisive especially with mm. vegan I think you know kind of the, the growth in plant-based food and the health and the, I think the trouble is with vegan sometimes is it it, it puts uh, it, it turns the debate into something very angry so yeah, instead yeah, of yeah. actually being a debate around no, nutrition exactly. or around great food yeah, or around yeah. what you can do with vegetables or the beautiful mm. food that's mm. available it, it, it becomes too polarising yeah so no, I think so, yeah, can, exactly and, and, and I, I think part. you need you know a, a lot of uh, vegetarians and vegans you know don't always have the right uh, knowledge of, um, you know, rearing cattle and poultry and fishing and that sort of stuff. And I always, I always love talking to vegans and vegetarians about why, you know, when you're looking at other shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, 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 or what car they turned up in. Uh, yeah, that's why I think it's important. You know, I, I uh, eat a lot less uh, meat and dairy than I used to, but I also recognise, I don't know, the complexity around, and, and certainly if you are going to eat uh, meat or dairy, or even if you're just, you know, interested in food, then the provenance of that food and where it comes from, and again, mm. just, you know, mm. said earlier about being with the open-air dairy guys, but seeing, you know, how their animals are looked and after. And, and actually how to cook it. yeah. So what's your uh, what are you doing to make vegetables interesting then? Because people's perception there's all is sorts. that it's... Well, there's all sorts. I mean, you know, there's, you know, you, mushrooms are one of those great things that actually, you know, have a very good uh, sort of meaty content, if you like. Yeah. And, you know, I've done vegan dinners, like five course vegan dinners for like 30, 40 people uh, for artists and stuff. And By request, or just, the, to, just to demonstrate? No, no, just because I wanted to do it, really. Because you know, the artist is vegan, and why, why shouldn't you sort of showcase, you know, vegan food? Yeah. And at the end of the meal, no one really notices that you've actually give them, you know, four or five courses of vegan food. Yeah. Okay. Does any of that come from a motivation of recognising that um, that it's probably there's a necessity in some ways that if if we all eat you know beef three times a day and there's going to be ten billion people on planet Earth that it's it's yeah, not sustainable or is that, is that I don't think about it in that way but it's no, um, just purely from a food yeah, sense yeah 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 uh, I think a lot of it is really you know cooking vegan and vegetarian food is you know it's being a bit experimental and a bit of common sense yeah, I think and actually cooking you know really nice food without using meat or fish yeah it's good I've certainly been able to judge chefs I think we've been very guilty in our restaurants before of being a little bit lazy with the veggies food but I think you can tell a lot about a chef if they make the vegetarian food interesting because mm. I think there's just mm. a need to be a little bit more creative to give it the kind of the flavours and the, and the depth and the consistency that still makes it feel like a bit of a treat because yeah. not many people go out to a restaurant and just think I'm just yeah, going to have a exactly, salad yeah. they, want a, they want a certain element of comfort food and to feel like they've uh, had something yeah, gratifying yeah, and, yeah. and I think to do that at the moment <clears throat> maybe just because of less experience I don't know is it, is it less experience or is it actually harder to do it with vegetables than it is no not a, at all a, a I actually think there's more opportunities to be creative with uh, vegetables yeah than meat and fish right 
because yeah. you quite often you know garnish your meat or fish dish with vegetables whereas you know with vegetarian and vegan food you're actually focusing on the main ingredient so like i do with a meat or fish main ingredient you know you might focus on asparagus or jerusalem artichokes or you know a penny bun mushroom or you know whatever so it's it's there's no there's no difference it reignited my uh, passion for food, I guess, having uh, restaurants and I don't have the same gift that you have in the kitchen. So I, d I didn't feel the need to be cooking myself. But once I was surrounded by chefs, I let the, sh the chefs cook for me. But actually getting more interested in the sort of whole food plant base and the health implications of that. Actually, you know, I'd never really cooked with all of the beans and the lentils and... Uh, yeah, the nuts and the seeds and all the stuff that's out there. So it kind of got me back into cooking again. Just yeah, kind of experiment. and I, I think a lot of vegans and vegetarians are, get a bit, you know, overzealous on the nuts and the seeds, mm -hmm. really. And uh, we don't need to. Why not focus on, on the actual vegetable itself, yeah. you know, okay. whether it's going above the ground or underground or yeah. really. Because I think a lot of, you know, health shops, you know, there's shelves and shelves of seeds and nuts and stuff, which actually, you know, should be fed to the birds, really, rather than focusing on the actual fresh ingredient. Okay, from a nutritional perspective or from a flavour? Yeah, both. Both, really. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You don't need to use seeds and nuts to introduce flavour to a a vegetable. You know, yeah. a carrot, for example. You know, you can have, a, you know, a fantastic dish with a plate of roasted carrots. How, do how, very little to it. Come on, Mark. How do you make them? Let <laughs> <laughs> me do. I mean, you, you can introduce something like a cumin seed, which is okay. everyone's favourite spice. You know, if you go to a curry house, yeah. you know, the most addictive thing there is the, the cumin in the background of uh, the, the curry spice mix. But if you just roasted, simply roasted carrots with you know cumin and some good olive oil. Yeah, good enough. Any other favourite uh, vegan dishes whilst you're uh, making me salivate? Well, just recently I've been, I've, I've made a uh, fresh sort of green pea tofu, oh, yeah. which is good. So it's not tofu in the strictly the soybean sense of the word, uh, but it comes out exactly the same. How do you make that? Uh, with green pea flour. Put some blended fresh peas in it. Set it. And it doesn't come out like you know, rock hard. So that you can dice it up, but you just sort of scoop it. A bit like a sort of creme fraiche yeah. consistency. Okay. Not, uh, not so any of your recipes. I've been books making yet. it. Not yet. So when's, when's the? Wait, I was going to say when's the vegan one coming out? I don't know. Who knows? Soon. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I'm halfway through it. Are you started? <laughs> yeah. Okay, excellent. That's good. And uh, no, I think I think. Yeah. No, I just think I think it's great if you're going to do one on fish, do one on plants as well. So uh, yeah, I yeah, think, I think yeah. from a you know from a planetary perspective, I think we're all becoming more aware that we need to try and yeah you know have have less of an impact. So. Uh, that's good. Again, I guess, you know, you're, you're well-known in the trade. I would imagine, um, well-known to the public as well, but from a business advice perspective, you see people who want to come into hospitality. It's, it's well-known as being a really challenging industry for um, particularly, you know, entrepreneurship-wise if you're setting up your mm. own place. Uh, do you have any advice that you give people, either advice that you've heard over the years where you go, that's just garbage. I'm, I'm, I'm driving, actually, so don't worry. I'm just okay. very kindly being offered uh, another <laughs> glass of wine, much as I could stay all afternoon. I've got um, a fly on my glass. Ah, but thank Thank you. Um, yeah, any, any advice? I normally say you... don't do it. Yeah, well, likewise. <laughs> yeah. Let's say that they, they go through that stage. I suppose one is, yeah, why don't do it? And then if you are going to do it, what's the, what's the it's key It's just very hard, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've been brought up in hospitality and catering and stuff. And it does get harder and harder. You know, there's, there's a lot of challenges. Uh, the industry or because you get older? <laughs> everything, yeah. The industry, the... The amount of restaurants that are opening, you know, so it's not as easy as it was maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Okay. I agree with you. So I think anyone <laughs> out there that's thinking of opening a restaurant, because it might look easy from the outside, think twice. Why? why think twice, three times. Three times, <laughs> yeah. Well, I would, I would share that. So yeah, get, get in touch with both of us. So why, in, you know, why is it so much harder, is it? I, I, yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's all of the challenges, you know. There's the the choice and competition, if you want to call it competition. There's the landlords, especially in London, that actually don't think twice about doubling your rent. There's the business rates that you know just escalate, and suddenly the business that was sort of quite healthy suddenly becomes a business that you know you're struggling to break even. 
Now I share, I share that pain. I might, I might have another glass of wine if you carry on. Because, uh, yeah. But it is, it's not, you know, when you, when you first open a restaurant and it's all flying and stuff, like, 10 years later, you know, things change. So let's say they say, no, I'm, uh, I'm going to do it anyway, Mark. Uh, thanks, uh, yeah, Mark, well, I, I for your advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any other, uh, is there a key tip though? Is there, is there a little bit of, um, you know, magic that you would say, whatever you do, don't forget this? Not really. I think, I think we've kind of covered all of the advice that yeah. Yeah, might okay. or might not work. But. Cool. Um, if people want to find out more about you, obviously they can buy your latest book, Hooked, which, yeah, hooked, uh, yeah. which looks great. So, but if they want to find yeah, out which more is a, about... which is more of a good read than the recipe book, but yeah. there, there are some recipes thrown in. Excellent. So, uh, yeah. And then if they want to find out about Food Rocks uh, website or follow Rocks, you more. Yeah, it's on our website. Okay, what's and the website? it's happening in September. It's um, Hicks Restaurants. Okay. And then uh, are you uh, avid on social media? Are you a particularly fan of people following yeah, you on there? Are you, I am. Are you yeah, a rancher? Social media is one of those things that you kind of almost have to do these days. And whether it makes a big impact on your business or not is a okay. questionable subject. Yeah. But, is you it? know, we'll, we'll do it. And, uh, are you, uh, you personally, puts, though, are you on uh, Twitter or do you uh, leave well, it to Well, we do Twitter for business. For the, for the we business do morning. Instagram yeah. because everyone does Instagram. Okay. And you personally, though, not so much? Mm, yeah, personally and through yeah. the business here. Okay. Awesome. Perfect. All right. Well, I'll put uh, I'll put some links through to the to the relevant stuff Great. in the show notes Good. as well. But Thank uh, thanks, Mark, for sparing the time, mm. and I'll see you at the festival. And uh, yeah, Thank you. thanks for letting me invade your house. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening please go and visit our website humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information and whilst you're there don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry lastly if you could subscribe rate and review this podcast you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated thank you so much we'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time cheers cheers